It's early in the morning on November 20th, 1980. Michael Richard is sitting in his office at the Rip Van Winkle Gardens on the shores of Lake Pinor in southern Louisiana. The gardens feature acres of azaleas, tropical plants, and expansive lawns. Richard is the head gardener, and he doesn't just work here. He lives on the grounds with his family. On a good day, nearly a thousand visitors might pass through just to see his work. So he's proud of it. But on this morning in his office, Richard notices something frightening. Or at least it would be frightening to most people. The ground underneath the gardens is shaking. Richard doesn't think too much of it because his garden has two industrial neighbors. The first is Texaco, which recently began drilling for oil on a rig in the middle of Lake Pinor. The second is Diamond Crystal, which operates a salt mine. That decades-old mine is so vast that its caverns extend underneath the lake. Richard figures the shaking ground is just the mine going about its business. About every 10 seconds, we have a little vibration. We'd get the type of vibration when they were dynamite, but that was only done once or twice a day at shift change. So Richard goes about his day. The Rip Van Winkle Gardens has just completed a massive expansion, which includes a brand new visitor center. And the owner has sunk millions of dollars into his lakefront property, which means that Richard has a lot of work to do. But he's distracted. Because somehow the ground is still shaking. I looked out onto the the front porch of the new reception center, and I could see the water in our fountain sloshing back and forth, similar to when you get up out of a bathtub. I'd never seen this happen before. And then Richard looks at the walls of his office, and he sees the glass vibrating in the picture frames. He hurries outside to see if he can find out what's going on. And sure enough, the superintendent of the salt mine is walking right towards him with a grave look on his face. He says he's just seen a whirlpool forming on the surface of Lake Pinor. The vortex has already sucked Texaco's entire drilling platform into the lake. And it doesn't stop there. The whole lake is going down with it. From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. As you know, here at Eclipsed, we're interested in stories that were overshadowed by the sweep of history. Our tagline? Stories you never knew, you never knew. It's pretty good, right? I think Lake Pinier is a perfect example of an Eclipsed kind of story. Because the day after the Whirlpool destroyed Texaco's drilling platform, a tragic event unfolded on the opposite side of the country. And that was the one that monopolized the public's attention. On November 21st, 1980, the iconic MGM Grand Casino in Las Vegas caught fire. The fire began shortly after 7 in the morning and spread throughout the ground floor casino and the famous showroom in a matter of minutes, sending thick black smoke... Some electrical wiring in the restaurant started the blaze, resulting in dozens of deaths and hundreds of injuries. But let's hurry back to Louisiana. Mike Richard and the other characters in this tale are facing a different kind of foe. Corporate bungling. To me, what happened at Lake Pinor feels like something out of a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. You know, the old kind, where bad things happen to good people. And this fairy tale's premise is just, when you build your kingdom on a lake, what happens when that lake disappears? 
To tell this story, I've enlisted some help. A person with perhaps more gravitas. He's here to be our guide to the tragedy, our Greek chorus in this farce. Hi, my name is Linville Brown, and I'm me. Think of him as a narrator, the voice in your head. You're listening to the first part of our two-part series on the vanishing of Lake Tenure. Chapter 1. A Reporter Searches for Answers. It's November 1980. Journalist Michael Gold lives in Washington, D.C. and is a writer for a magazine called Science 80. Science 80's mission is to write about science in a way the general public can understand and appreciate. While searching for his next story, Gold sees some small mentions of Lake Pinor in the newspapers. He knows immediately that he needs to find out what exactly happened. You know, all you have to say is, did you hear about the lake that disappeared in Louisiana? And people want to know what the heck you're talking about. There were landslides and rivers reversing. I mean, the lake caught fire. Like, how can we not do this story? And for a 30-something reporter in Washington, D.C., trying to get people interested in science, it was like manna from heaven. Somehow, it still takes a while for Gold to convince his editor to send him to Louisiana. But finally, he gets the go-ahead. He lands on the Gulf Coast in the summer of 1981, the summer after the Lake Pinor disaster. And when he touches down in Louisiana, he's got two things on his mind. Lakes and condiments. Was there any, like, personal connection? Or was it just like, this is a fascinating story that, that we need to have in our magazine? Um, well, I like Tabasco sauce. Okay, yeah, that works. <laughs> right around that area where the Lake Pinure disaster happened is supposedly the, the birthplace of Tabasco sauce. Hot Mexican peppers that go into Tabasco sauce. Brought to the island from- I think when I went down there for the story, I did a quick detour uh, <laughs> to check out the, the company store there. I hope you expensed it personally. Yes. Now that he's appropriately sauced up, he needs to find out how the man-made disaster at Lake Pinor actually happened. It was by no means my first time disaster reporting because my years in newspapers, I'd covered blizzards and mass murders and all kinds of things. But everybody down there, well, with the exception of folks who were just beginning to sue each other in court. Um, everybody down there was very friendly, you know, Southern hospitality, happy to talk about it. One of the first things Gold tries to understand is how a salt company and an oil company ended up sharing the same lake. So in order to explain what Gold uncovers, we have to go all the way back to the Jurassic period. I'm kidding. Gold is a science writer, but I'm not. And the only thing you actually need to know is that because of a geological process many millions of years in the making, salt and oil are very often found together. In fact, while gold is on the ground in Louisiana, he discovers that Texaco oil and diamond crystal salt are very used to being neighbors. In the years before the disaster in 1980, the executives at the companies are so used to sharing the same landscapes that things get pretty buddy-buddy between the two corporate titans. So, Gold's answer to how Texaco and Diamond Crystal ended up sharing the same space is a simple one. The two corporations just kind of trust each other. They trust each other so thoroughly that apparently Diamond Crystal never checks the coordinates for Texaco's proposed drilling operation. And for its part, Texaco never contacts Diamond Crystal to find out the exact location of the mine. 
So now, Gold knows how the stage was set in the years before the disaster. And he even finds out what Diamond Crystal told the Army Corps of Engineers about Texaco's drilling operation. Diamond Crystal's people say, We are very pleased that Texaco is planning to drill in Lake Panyor and wish them all the success in finding some vital energy minerals. And I mean, who doesn't crave those? Of course, Texaco's search for vital energy minerals has them drilling just above a section of the salt mine. The ceiling of that mine is some 1,300 feet underneath this section of the lake. Chapter 2. The Oil Rig's Fateful Journey to the Bottom of the Lake. Let's pick things up from the day of the disaster. Thursday, November 20th, 1980. It's 5.30 a.m., long before sunrise on this fall morning in Louisiana. The Texaco drilling crew is hard at work out on their platform in the waters of Lake Pinor. Michael Gold later spoke to some of the workers who are on the rig when things start to go sideways. You know, they have a big platform out in the middle of the lake and a big oil drilling rig sitting on the platform. And, you know, this gigantic, heavy pipe, uh, this long string of metal going down 1,000, 1,200, 1,300 feet under the surface of the lake. The, the thing just suddenly seized up. And then it started jumping around. It was jumping like 5, 10 feet up and down. So the Texaco foreman turns to the drilling company head guy and said, uh, what was that? <laughs> and the guy from the drilling company said, I don't know. I've never seen that. It's near sunrise when the crew on the rig starts to notice that their drilling platform is tipping sideways. It's listing like a boat caught in a bad storm. The Texaco foreman orders everyone to evacuate the rig, and the workers scramble to shore. They all make it safely to dry land, but when the workers turn around, they see something horrifying. The towering oil rig, the wide platform, the drill, the entire giant operation topples over. It sinks into the lake and disappears out of sight. The workers can't believe it, because as far as they know, Lake Pinor is between three and six feet deep. So maybe the folks at Texaco are a bit distracted, and maybe they don't think to warn Diamond Crystal about what just happened. Meanwhile, over at the mine, nearly 50 workers are about to descend more than 1,000 feet below the surface to start their morning shift. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. You know that phrase, back to the salt mines? It's what you say when you have to get back to your daily grind. It's also just reality for the workers who mine salt beneath the lake. Gold wants to know what that's like. So he visits a salt mine during his reporting trip. That was freaky. I mean, I mean, it was freaky to go into a salt mine 
knowing about what had happened to this salt mine I was writing about. But they're all basically these underground cities, big rooms that have been carved out over the decades. There are many stories high and hugely wide, and they have like major highways that gigantic trucks drive through to connect from one room to the other. They've got explosives, they got full-size bulldozers and, you know, front-end loaders. So it really felt to me like being on the moon or something, being on another planet where it's all white. It was very otherworldly and nerve-wracking. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't want to spend a lot of time in there. Chapter 3. The Miners Descend. So that's the world Diamond Crystal's workers are about to enter. They descend into the mine a full 30 minutes after the Texaco workers watched the lake swallow their rig. One of the miners starting his shift that day is Wilfred Johnson. He's worked in the mine for 15 years. But on this day, when he's more than a thousand feet underground in the cavernous white rooms, he sees the overhead lights flash three times. The signal for an emergency. Most of the 48 miners rush back to the main elevator shaft to prepare for evacuation. But not Wilfred Johnson. Johnson knows that it's his job to find the leak, so he climbs aboard a tractor and he heads in the opposite direction from the other miners. He's driving away from the exit and down deeper into the mine. So he hopped onto this big clunky buggy that, that drives around through these huge rooms that have been carved out over the decades and he gets into the room where the leak is most conspicuous. You know, he first drives in, there's a little muddy sediment on the floor and it looks kind of like other leaks that he's he, he knows about. But what he told me was that after a minute or two, now it's water, it's not just mud, and the level of the water is, is rising visibly. He can see it rising visibly from minute to minute. And this is in a room 100 feet wide. Johnson looks down to see the water has reached the middle of his tractor tire. That means it's already two feet high. And that's when he knows this leak is bigger than anything he's ever seen before. Johnson also knows that the speed the water's rising is going to be a problem for evacuation. There are 48 workers in the mine, and the slow-moving elevator to the surface can only fit eight men in it at a time. Chapter 4. As the water rises, the miners attempt the surface. When Wilfred Johnson discovers the leak in the salt mine and sees how fast the water is rising, he rushes to help evacuate the other workers. He turns his tractor around and drives out of the water. The salt mine is crossed with wide, white roads that ascend and descend like the ramps in an underground parking garage. As he makes his way slowly upward on the salt mine's wide boulevards, he passes the area where the rest of the miners are gathering, right by the elevator they call the man cage. The first group of miners are already making their ascent to safety, but that leaves 40 miners that Johnson has to worry about. Johnson makes a quick trip up to the thousand foot level to make sure the area is clear. And by the time he gets back down to the evacuation area, he sees that the entrance to the man cage is already six feet underwater, which means the man cage is unusable. The 40 miners are waiting for an elevator that can't come, watching the waters rise. 
it won't be long before they drown. That's when Johnson comes up with a new plan. He calls to the surface and tells them to send the man cage to the thousand foot level, where the waters have yet to reach. Now, the man cage can be functional again. They just need to get to higher ground. It's then that all the lights go out. Johnson organizes a convoy of tractors and dump trucks and uses their headlights to guide the men to the thousand foot level, where the man cage is waiting to take the next eight miners to the surface. He was an incredible hero. The story that he told and that others reconstructed about that very quick evacuation was just nail-biting. To point out that the water was rushing that fast and he, he knew that meant trouble. That's his equivalent of saying we probably could have died that day. I mean, those guys made it out of there with minutes to spare. You know, they were coming up with wet feet. Johnson waits until the last of the miners are lifted to safety. And then he steps into the man cage for the last ride to the surface. The miners used to joke at safety meetings about what would happen if the lake broke into the mine. Because it seemed ridiculous. What Johnson doesn't know as he ascends to the surface is that this is far more than a leak. Every gallon of water in Lake Pinor is being sucked into the mine. Which means the old joke has come true. Above Johnson's head, the chaos is intensifying. And there are people on the surface of the lake who are still unaware of the danger they're in. On the next episode of Eclipse, the local sheriff makes a desperate attempt to evacuate Rip Van Winkle Gardens. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Archival research by Caitlin Rathy. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon, and our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and the big man himself, Michael Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. A special thanks to Michael Gold for his reporting. Check out his book about a disaster in cancer research called A Conspiracy of Cells, wherever you get your books. A very special thanks to Mike Richard for his help telling the story so long after he witnessed it. And, of course, thanks to Lenville Brown for narrating. Go check out his work on Disco Elysium, where he's quite literally the voice inside your head. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsedcampsidemedia.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch, but not Instagram. That's different. I mean, not really. It's just a different username. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>